0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Tuesday. It is August 9th, and on today's program, we are kind of gonna have a focus on protein. We're gonna talk first here with Dr. Paul Sundberg of the Swine Health Information Center about the diseases that have popped up here over the past month or continued to percolate in the swine industry domestically and around the world. And in segment two, we're gonna check with Tanner Beamer. He's the director of government affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. They've been unpacking this inflation reduction Act we discussed yesterday with Jackie Fatka. We're gonna hear if there's anything in there for cattle producers, as this thing makes its way toward becoming law. In segment three, we're gonna turn the focus from the cattle producer to the beef and pork consumer. And Glenn Tonser, the ag economics professor at Kansas State University will be joining us for the past six months or so. He has been compiling consumer data on red meat demand. He calls it the meat demand monitor. He's gonna give us an update. It's instructive here in this time of exceedingly high inflation to see how consumers are adapting to changing prices at the grocery store and we're going to close today with travis woodside of chief agri we're going to talk grain bins we're going to talk husker harvest days and we're going to check in with matt youngman who's the director of the show over there in grand island but first let's turn to dr sunberg he joins us today paul let's talk what's happening domestically right off the bat purrs continues to be an issue what are the trends we're seeing this summer
3: sure good morning mike there's always an issue with pers. um the trend this summer is we're still in our kind of seasonal dip uh, PERS is usually at a low level during the summer months and then it increases in the fall and through the winter and we're in, the, we're in a seasonal dip right now, similar, very similar to what we had in June. That's overall, that's across the country. But um, in Nebraska, in Missouri, and in Indiana, there is higher than expected uh, incidence of PERS. So the regions are very important to pay attention to with PERS or other diseases as well.
0: That's a good point, Paul. And how are we seeing the the swine industry respond to the PERS challenge here in those places where it's a hot spot this year?
3: Well, right now um, the whole issue about responding to PERS is preventing PERS and biosecurity. Um, and biosecurity means how you act every day on the farm. It's not necessarily doing something new. It's doing something that you know you should be doing every day, all the time. That's really the biggest challenge. And so. The response to PERS has been um, this let's take a look and renew the biosecurity efforts because this is a low level right now, and we've got to be prepared for it as we go into the fall and the barns get closed up.
0: Yeah, that time is coming. We've also got a couple other diseases you track. You look at Circovirus, you look at coronavirus. Where do you see risks that producers need to know about here as we head into August, Paul?
3: Yeah, PED, uh, coronavirus, enteric coronavirus, porcine epidemic diarrhea, or PED, is um, is still a concern. There, There's overall, again, across the country, there's been a moderate decrease, but there are regional highs in Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, and North Carolina. And I think this issue of both the PERS with the regional in Nebraska, Missouri, and Indiana, and the PED across the Midwest and in North Carolina are good examples of, of producers needing to be aware of what's going on around them. We may be at a certain level nationally, but it's what's happening in your neighborhood that's important, and that means talking to your, your neighbors, talking to producers, having veterinarians get a hold of veterinarians, regional control um, programs, and being aware of what's going on around you is going to give you the best help to be prepared and to prevent infection on the farm
0: that is a great point paul we got to be aware of what's happening around us and as the american pork industry we need to be aware of what's happening in the pork industry around the world paul african swine fever couple fresh outbreaks globally here in the month of july who got hit
3: yeah so african swine fever is jumping instead of spreading it's jumping it jumped from east germany to uh, germany by france and germany by the netherlands it jumped from east europe to northwest italy and then jumped from Northwest Italy down to Central Italy. Italy. And the jump is an illustration of um, somehow we, people are moving, probably moving contaminated product, even though it's not a risk, that's a food safety risk for people. There's no risk at all for people. It is for pigs and a contaminated product, getting to a feral or a domestic pig is gonna cause an infection. And I think um, what we've been seeing is that movement of jumping around the world That is a special concern because that's a lesson we need to learn about um, risks for ASF getting into the U.S.
0: Absolutely. Especially as we get towards winter, Americans start to vacation in the Dominican Republic is a pretty good spot to take a trip. DR still grappling with ASF, Paul?
3: Yeah, they sure are. They're still grappling with it. They're going on surveillance and testing and depopulation, but it's going to be a long, difficult road to hoe down there for them. I will offer that one success in the Dominican Republic is the DR Customs folks. Since January, they have had a program of, of pre-approval um, of travel and pre-inspection of travel at airports. And they've seized more than 10,000 pounds of illegal pork and sausages in luggage that much of it was destined for the U.S. So, yeah, the Dominican Republic continues to be a, a, a risk. And we have to do everything we can do to keep that virus on that island. But um, this process of the DR Customs folks finding, seizing, and destroying this product that could get into the U.S. helps prevent that jump of ASF from the DR to the U.S.
0: Absolutely. And folks, don't be bringing meat back into this country from any foreign locales. Paul, we've also got to talk quickly about the foot and mouth disease outbreak that's spreading across Indonesia. You made some notes. It seems like it's moving fairly quickly.
3: Yeah, across Indonesia, it's going very very quickly. One of the things that has happened um, uh, in that area is that Australia has done some testing of some products, and they found that the uh, foot and mouth disease fragments, at least, are in some of the commercial meat products that are available in Australia. We know from our research on Plum Island that foot and mouth disease can be spread to pigs orally. And so if there's contaminated product that gets to pigs, again, that may be an issue. And so there's a lot of concern there. It doesn't necessarily mean that virus is infective. in what Australia found. They found fragments, at least but it's an illustration of this virus continues to move and it continues to be an issue, Indonesia, the Southeast Asia area, especially.
0: All right, Paul, we're gonna keep watching. As you look out over this next month, what are you keeping an eye on? What's a concern you've got for the swine health industry?
3: Well, I'll tell you one of the things that we're investigating right now, actively investigating, is whether or not a new virus has a role in respiratory disease of pigs. It's called, it's called an astrovirus. And there's some detection of this virus in respiratory cases in the veterinary diagnostic labs. And um, these cases are negative to flu and other things. So we're keeping an eye out for astrovirus as an emerging issue.
0: All right, Paul. Well, hopefully we won't be talking about astrovirus. Maybe it'll go away, but if it sticks around, we'll get you back on and we'll track how it spreads. Paul Sundberg, director of the Swine Health Information Center, thanks for joining us today.
3: Thanks, Mike.
0: And folks, stick around. We'll talk to Tanner Beamer from NCBA when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
2: Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to
4: call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison Help is a 24-7 government
0: hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to
2: call. Save Poison Help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222.
0: Are you looking to improve crop nutrition and soil health? Anuvia Plant Nutrients has held several Future of Fertilizer field tours across the Midwest. The final tour will be in Barrett, Minnesota on Thursday, August 11th, and will feature corn and soy. You don't wanna miss this exciting opportunity, and space is limited. For more information on dates and locations, and to reserve your spot, visit us at fertilizertour.com. That's fertilizertour.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to AOA. We continue to talk about the issues that are impacting the world of agriculture. And uh, we are going to be taking a look at what's happening here in uh, in the cattle space in just a second. We're going to be talking with Tanner Beamer of uh, the NCBA in just a moment about what he's seen there in that Inflation Reduction Act. We're working to get Tanner set up on the line right now. So before we do that, how However, we are going to take a look over at the markets. We do see some markets moving today. We've got a lot of green in the screen throughout the grain markets. Currently we've got December corn almost up 10 trading at 917. We've got the March contract looking out there into the future up nine cents trading today at 924 soybeans up big on the day. We've got the November new crop soybean up 30 cents on the day trading today at 1430 kicking around back and forth. and. We're seeing the trade really take some of the risk out of this market. They are looking very, very hard to see what is developing here as this continues to work forward. Looking out, uh, we're we're watching the crop ratings. The big surprise here this morning was the crop ratings were down 3% here in, uh, in the corn market drop down to 58% good to excellent. Now, of course, a lot of the analysts we talk to when uh, when we start talking about crop ratings, this point in the year, of course, post pollination, we're dealing with a lot of issues that those scouts have to try and identify as they are working through it. Now, what those scouts are finding is that the crop is looking a little bit worse now that's expected as we start to see some dry down as we start to see uh you know these these issues play out here over the uh over the summer and uh Gally, I apologize I just completely lost my internet it's crazy when that happens but it is back ladies and gentlemen we also saw the the market be surprised a little bit uh, I'm reading different takes on this some folks are saying they were surprised to see the weekly crop ratings down one percent in soybeans other folks this time of year less surprised when they see that the other big shocker here in yesterday's crop conditions report was the spring wheat crop now that crop We have discussed it a lot on this program. We heard the results of the uh, the spring uh, spring wheat tour here just a few weeks ago. But what we're seeing is that crop is continuing to struggle. Uh, We've got weekly crop ratings down 6% to 64% good to excellent. 9% of the crop is already in the bin there in the spring wheats, But those market facts are definitely moving things today. But Tanner is on the line. We've got him here with us. Tanner Beamer, Director of Government Affairs at NCBA. Tanner, thanks for joining us today. You
8: bet, Mike. Good to be with you.
0: Hey, let's start first and foremost with this Inflation Reduction Act. Big piece of legislation, a lot of compromise went into place. I understand there's some money for agriculture. Tanner, is there anything in there for cattlemen and women to get excited about?
8: You know, uh, there's a lot to be concerned about in this bill. There are some good things that we can cherry pick out of this. I think probably top of mind, uh, there's about $4 billion that were allocated to the Bureau of Reclamation to uh, increase drought resiliency throughout the West, which we all know is uh, a very big issue facing producers across the country. Uh, I think as much of a third of the entire country is under at least some form of drought, if you look at the most recent drought monitor. So that drought assistance will be helpful. In addition to that, there's about $20 billion for existing USDA programs uh, that are currently oversubscribed, and that accounts for things like the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, or EQIP, uh, the RCCP Conservation Stewardship Program, and ASAP as well. There's a, a bunch of new money that will be going into those programs that will be available over the next 10 fiscal years. Uh, and we've been kind of monitoring that situation to try and figure out exactly how they're going to implement those funds. But we always like to see some uh, additional funding go to those conservation programs.
0: Indeed. But as you mentioned, Tanner, this is a massive piece of legislation. There's always some trade offs. You touched on some things to be concerned about. What's got you nervous as this bill marches toward becoming law?
8: Well, you know, I think that uh, first and foremost, something on the negative side to be at least a little bit happy about is that a lot of the harmful tax provisions that were contemplated as revenue raisers back when this Build Back Better bill was originally being contemplated earlier this spring, things like a change to the stepped-up in basis, 1031 lifetime kind exchanges, and 2032A special use valuation, those were not included in this legislation as revenue raisers for this legislation, which is very good for cattle producers. Uh, something that is a, a very interesting, though, is that it does give an extra $80 billion to the Internal Revenue Service to hire about 87,000 new employees over the next 10 years to... Uh, increase enforcement efforts to make sure that uh, everybody is uh, playing by the rules, which is there's nothing wrong with that, although that does uh, obviously come with a huge regulatory burden for those who are under audit or have to justify that activity to the IRS. So that's, that's certainly uh, a cause for concern. Uh, some of the other provisions on the tax side uh, are very highly focused on pharmaceutical transactions as well as um, on uh, a minimum corporate tax as well.
0: All right, so we'll see how this all plays out. But yeah, 87,000 new IRS agents, and of course, agriculture, where a lot of self-employed people, a lot of small businesses, they do rank a little higher on the audit uh, checklist. So folks do be careful out there. That is a good concern. Tanner, I, I want to talk back a little bit to the cattle market price discovery and transparency bill. Saw a lot of progress here two, three months ago on that. It seems like it's stalled. What's your take on the cattle market price discovery bill?
8: I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think a lot of that has less to do with, you know, maybe the desires of some of that bill sponsors and more to do with the fact that the most precious commodity in this town is floor time in the U.S. Senate. Um, of course, when uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, we had a lot of conversations about gun uh, reform. We also, you know, with Senator Manchin finally agreeing to move some uh, this Inflation Reduction Act, that All of those things ended up taking time in the United States Senate. Uh, They are now gaveled out for the August recess, which they do every year. And there's not very many legislative days between now and the midterm elections. And then once they get into the lame duck session after those midterms, I think all eyes will be on the appropriations process. So there's just not a lot of time. Uh, to consider some of these smaller, uh, less high priority pieces of legislation. I think that that's exactly what's happening to the fisher Grassley bill, but certainly to the special investigator bill and some of these other pieces of legislation we've seen floating around this Congress.
0: Tanner, this Congress and and the one prior has been very focused on addressing producers' needs here in the cattle market space. We've never seen this much attention on cattle producers from Washington, D.C. As we gear ahead for the 2023 Farm Bill, is it worth discussing a separate livestock title now that D.C. is more involved here in the lives of cattle producers?
8: The last thing that cattle producers need after years of hardship and economic struggle is more D.C. on farms and ranches. They need autonomy to make the right business decisions, the right land use decisions that are going to ultimately result in sustained yield, both economically and from a land health and environmental perspective. So no, I don't think that it is appropriate to talk about a livestock title. That's something that NCBA has long been opposed to and will continue to oppose Uh, efforts to use some of these legislative ideas that have percolated through this Congress to establish a livestock title. Um, All of this really comes down to making sure that producers are the ones in the driver's seat, not bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. Absolutely.
0: And the folks in Washington, D.C., Tanner, come this fall, we're going to see a lot of faces change there in the House. Do you have any thoughts as to how this new Congress might uh, might handle livestock issues, or is it still just way too early to, to make a guess? You know,
8: I think that in terms of of livestock issues, I think we're probably going to see the House of Representatives flip. I mean, if you look at uh, the Cook Political Report, there's 34 races across the country that Cook rate as toss-up elections. A lot of those are Democrats defending seats. Um, A lot of those are open seats. We've seen a high number of retirements and people otherwise just leaving Congress uh, in this election cycle. Um, you know, if you look at some of those races, so Cook rates them as the uh, solid for one party, lean one party and toss up. And if you combine all of the leans and solids for Democrats, they've got somewhere in the ballpark of 187 seats. Uh, and if you look at the solid to lean for Republicans, they got about 214, which means that of those 30, for toss-up races, Republicans only have to win eight to secure the, uh, a majority, whereas Democrats would have to uh, have to have to win 31 of those 34 seats in order to keep the majority. So the cards are definitely not stacked in in Democrats' favor right now. Uh, one interesting thing since the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the generic ballot uh, from 538 has shown uh, that the vast majority of Americans favor Democrats controlling Congress by a margin of 0.2 percent. But it's interesting because it's the first time that they've preferred Democrats in about 10 months. Uh, So, you know, anything can happen in Washington. There's certainly a lot of campaign time left, but I think we'll probably see some turnover in the House of Representatives, which, of course, will mean new leadership at the Agriculture Committee as well as the relevant subcommittees.
0: And lots and lots of educating as these new legislators come into D.C. and perhaps are confused about how the cattle market operates. Tanner Beamer, director of government affairs there at NCBA. I'm sure you'll be taking part in that conversation. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk about that consumer demand for that red meat. Glenn Tonser of K-State will join us in the next segment. We're going to talk about the meat demand monitor for the month of July. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month, the National Corn Growers brings us the monthly grind here on AOA, looking at the aspects of corn demand. In August, we talked about the partnership between corn and cattle with Kate Maher of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association.
9: We are really fortunate to have a great partnership with the National Corn Growers Association. We work together to bring a lot of information to producers, latest technology information to make all of us better and and keep that demand, keep that product flowing to meet that demand that's, that's around the globe. You know, we export a lot of corn through beef. Um, that's really important. Uh, we are fortunate again to partner partner with NCGA on a series that we've been doing on cattlemen to cattlemen. Uh, we've just got such a great story to tell together. Started at the seed yard in Nebraska, talking about sustainability practices and in corn production and beef production, and they just go hand in hand. That goes on to the next next step, um, where we're producing that really amazing grain fed beef.
0: Tune in on Wednesday, September 7th, for the next edition of the Monthly Grind from our friends at the National Corn Growers Association.
1: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, so far we're continuing much of the strength from the overnight session in the grains and oil seeds as we are green across the screen, although we are pulling back a bit in wheat and corn. Now, we also got a report of 5.2 million bushels of U.S. corn sold to China this morning on the Daily Wire from USDA. That is new crop sales. U.S. crop prices, though, trading higher after USDA lowered its good excellent ratings for corn by 3 percentage points and soybeans by 1 point And also spring wheat down 6 points. Hot and dry conditions in western growing areas behind most of the reductions and more of the same is expected here the next 10 days. That has really led to... The uh, move to the upside here in the grains. Now uh, we see that uh, states to the north and west they saw the largest declines in their condition ratings. The Dakotas' uh, corn ratings dropped 6 to 7 percent. While states in the eastern core belt saw small improvements in their condition ratings in Illinois and Indiana up one and two points respectively. You're going to be watching this market very closely. It's going to be reacting to the uh, crop ratings as well as the weather forecast ahead and also squaring positions ahead of this Friday's USDA WASDE report for August that will also include the resurvey details for the Dakotas and Minnesota. Right now, December quarter up nine and a quarter, six sixteen and a half. November soybeans up twenty-eight and a quarter, fourteen twenty-eight and a quarter. Bean meal August up fourteen fifty a ton, five thirteen twenty. Pete oil for August up 97 points at 77 Chicago wheat, September up a half penny, 7.88 a quarter. September KC wheat up a half penny, 8.48 a quarter. September spring wheat up six and three quarters, 8.87 and a half. Live cattle August down 27, 138.07. August feeders down 147, 179.80. August hogs down 52, 121.27. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen.
5: we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to
0: Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson
0: welcome back to AOA ladies and gentlemen thanks for tuning in you know when you make your trip to the grocery store if that's where you buy your meat you pause in front of the meat case and wonder well just how willing to pay are you at the prices posted well what do you think about your neighbor What do you think they're willing to pay? These are big questions, and they shape the way consumers demand red meat. And Glenn Tonser, Ag Economics Professor at Kansas State University, has been tracking these questions for the Meat Demand Monitor, his monthly update on really all consumers' attitudes about beef. He joins us today for the breakdown of the July month. Glenn, thank you for joining us today. And before we get started, could you give us a little more background on the Meat Demand Monitor?
7: Sure. Happy to be on. Thanks for having me on here, Mike. So uh, the Mean to Monitor is a joint project funded by the beef and pork checkoff programs. It's collaborative. Uh, the first data was collected February of 20, uh, which just by coincidence was a month before, you know, kind of pandemic changed our lives. It's not meant to be a COVID project, but the timing aligned with that. It's a large national survey-based effort. All the raw data, the surveys, the procedures, the subsequent reports, you know, the summaries you and I talk about monthly, uh, cross-linked academic papers that geeks like me write with the data and so forth are all posted to our agmanager.info website here at K-State and I encourage folks to make use of this resource.
0: Absolutely. Folks, if you don't have agmanager.info bookmark, do yourself a favor and make that change. Fantastic resources, great data, and a lot of, of quality curation of the data. So, Glenn, I want to turn our focus back to the meat demand monitor. That first question that you discuss each month is the willingness to pay. That question, what do consumers think when they walk up to the meat case and they see these prices? Tell us what you found. Yeah,
7: so the summary statement, before I get lost in a few numbers, is in July... Food service, so away from home restaurant, demand pretty much across the board was weaker than it was in June. Uh, demand for ribeye steak was basically flat, no change in July, but all the categories we looked at were weaker than in June. However, when we look at retail, so think grocery store, and it's important, those are two different market channels. So grocery store demand in July was actually up for every category we look at, except for plant-based patties uh, compared to June. So difference in market channel, can always matter, and I think it certainly mattered in the month of July. To repeat that, weaker demand on balance away from home, a little stronger demand through the grocery store, except for plant-based patties. Um, that's a summary statement across the proteins that we look at here, primarily beef and pork, but also chicken breasts and shrimp, salmon products. Are in this effort. Uh, what I think is underneath that, Mike, is some ongoing tightening of the belt, um, and I'll give you some other numbers in a minute to reinforce this. But folks just consuming to eat a little, uh, choosing to eat a little bit more at home, go to restaurants a little bit less shows up in the form of weaker demand at restaurants a little stronger demand to the grocery store
0: and glenn it also shows up just in the numbers you know you talk about the price of a ribeye steak at food service versus the price of a ribeye steak at home and not shocking it's considerably more expensive to dine out particularly in this climate
7: yeah so like the the estimates we have here there's about a ten dollar um difference specifically for the month of july here Uh, The average person in the U.S. is estimated to be willing to pay $17.82 per pound of ribeye at the grocery store, and that same exercise done uh, through the MDM effort for a dinner meal at a restaurant is willing to pay $27.14 for a ribeye steak meal. Now, notice how I said meal when I talked about the food service, because obviously you go there and eat a whole usually, you know, multiple things on your plate. So it's willingness to pay for that meat-centric item, but also the sides, the labor it takes to bring it to you, somebody else preparing it, so forth. So there's multiple reasons for that $10 difference. But if you turn this on its head, that $10 difference, I think, is part of why more and more people are consuming at home in the current inflationary environment where, you know, somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of our population probably is taking a net pay decline.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned ribeye demand at uh, food service has stayed flat. We've seen demand climb across the grocery store sectors. Looking at the different types of red meat, of course, you track uh, you track beef, you track some pork cuts, you track those pat-based patties. Are, are we seeing consumers change what they buy? Glenn, are they opting for a pork loin rather than a ribeye yet?
7: Yeah, there's some of that. And I'll, I'll jump all the way to, um, Mike, you know, I include what I call ad hoc questions at the end of the survey every month. And they've been inflation heavy um, for certainly the last four months. Some of these predate that. And to answer your question, I want to quote some of those findings specifically. And again, folks, pull us on monog manager. You'll see at the end of the July base report. It's a four-pager. It's pretty short. But we now have over three-fourths of respondents, and this is over 2,000 people in the country in July, that say they're making some change in response to higher meat prices. And specifically, the number that are saying they're buying a smaller volume of the preferred product or they're buying a different cut, which is your question. Or they're buying smaller packages. So think 12 ounce instead of you know 16 ounce on the size. Think sirloin instead of ribeye or ham instead of pork loin. Those kind of things. We talk a different cut, and then just lower volume. Think you know two packages instead of three of your preferred choice. Those are all three you know potential adjustments, and the rate of people making each of those adjustments is the highest in July. So I think more and more people are adjusting what they buy, how many they buy. Again, in response to taking a net pay decline, this isn't, you know, you don't need to be a geeky PC economist to understand why that's happening, but I think there's a lot of value in tracking it and finding out exactly when it's occurred, and it appears in July that change of behavior is ramped up.
0: Glenn, from an overall market perspective, I would imagine that when we're looking at demand, seeing demand rise at grocery stores, even if it cuts back at food service, I would my gut says we sell a lot more through the grocery store anyway, so an increase there is probably better for the overall health of the in- industry in terms of getting product through the pipeline. Would that be accurate?
7: Yeah, that gets a little tricky depending on what category we're talking about so you know this is a beef and pork centric product uh, project excuse me there's also chicken there's other categories why am i reminding us of that uh you know the beef industry does rely on higher price for its steak products as a component of its you know differentiation proposition and white tablecloth restaurant meals are often where the beef industry succeeds getting those higher you know price points accomplished that's harder to do through the grocery store so i pause on you know saying how does this fit every category i think it fits um chicken and pork a little bit better than it does beef is why i give you that response but the other one i'd be remiss if i wasn't doing my day job in a broader sense mike is we're talking about the two domestic market channels there's also that all important third channel which is export it's a foreign demand for us beef pork chicken and export demand particularly for beef has not been very strong it's really a total demand for us products across all three of those channels that matters you and i are focusing on the domestic insights from the mdm which is totally fine But the net effect of global demand being strong is really what drives livestock producers' realities, and we're trying to dissect it across the channels, of course, but I need to interject that export point because it's not really just comparing domestic food service and uh, retail. We need to interject the export piece as well
0: absolutely absolutely got to get all three legs of the demand stool bringing the focus back to the US of course we talk a lot about our how our consumers are being farther removed from the farm the understanding or expectation is perhaps they know less about the type of food they're consuming I know you check in on their meat knowledge Glenn what'd you find in the month of July
3: yeah so we have
7: four standard questions that as you say we kind of label it the knowledge assessment Uh, the good news is for several months in a row uh, over three fourths of respondents recognize the role of USDA inspection, um, Indirectly, directly, I think that's some assurance on you know the knowledge about safety procedures are in place uh, for both beef import uh, production systems. And similarly, well over eighty percent month after month, including here in July, recognize the role of cooking temperature versus visual inspection of color on whether meat is done. Uh, there's been a lot of effort both on the beef and pork side of things to increase that knowledge, so that's good to see. Uh, two areas where I think the industry the broadest use of the term industry has some work to do still, is recognizing the difference between pork color, so white and red. Uh, you and I, Mike, are old enough to remember uh, old campaigns, you know, the other white meat and so forth. Uh, red pork, and I'm not a meat scientist, but as I understand it, has better water-holding capacity, better eating experience. Uh, we need more people in the U.S. to recognize that. And similarly, on the beef side, um, less than half accurately recognize that choice is superior to select. So your listeners probably know it's prime, then choice, then select. Um, that term choice versus select is not widely is as widely recognized accurately in our population as we'd like. So two of the four you know barometers are very good. Two of them point to areas opportunities for improvement.
0: Yeah, and there's always the need for ongoing education in the world of food and agriculture. Glenn, uh, just on the methodology, you mentioned you're surveying about 2,000 people a month. And do those 2,000 people change each month? Is this a fresh cohort every time the demand monitor is done? Or are you tracking the same 2,000 over time?
7: No, it's a fresh cohort every month. So, you know, each day of the month, we're polling such that by the end of the month, we have over 2,000 total responses which gives us at least 1000 for each of these two domestic channels that we've been breaking apart here today, Mike. But it is different respondents. Uh, Ideally, it'd be a consistent panel. But I will just be direct with your listeners, that's not budget feasible
0: um, in this environment. Well, that's certainly understandable. As you look ahead to the month of August, you're compiling the data today, Glenn, do you think these trends that you've been highlighting are just going to be in place these slow motion shifts in consumer demand?
7: Uh, my gut says yes, but there's one little ray of hope, I guess I'll interject, again from the July report, looking forward into August. And each month I've been asking what you expect the grocery store retail prices to be next month uh, for ribeye steak, ground beef, pork chop, and bacon. And when I asked that in July, for the month of August, so I'm asking people to look forward over the next month, the rate of increase is lower. So if that holds consumer expectations about you know, the highest prices are behind us, so to speak, and I think more generally with gas prices declining some and just some signs that maybe inflation's peaked don't you know hold me to that but there's some signs of that in our current dialogue if in fact you know a month from now you and I are talking that's been confirmed I think we might slowly move away from the inflation discussion a little
0: All right, we'll have to watch and see a lot more data yet ahead of us. And Glenn Tonser at Kansas State will be compiling the meat demand portion of that data. You can find it on the Internet at agmanager.info. Fantastic resource. Dr. Tonser, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to look ahead to Husker Harvest Days in September with Matt Youngman and Travis Woodside. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA,
2: Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up.
4: A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice us.org.
0: This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we welcome back Joe Lardy. He's a market intelligence and insights analyst with CHS Global Research to discuss mid season market updates grain prices have gone back and forth a lot lately. Is there a single issue you think is having the most impact on the grain market today?
10: Well, I would say that would be uncertainty. The weather certainly, obviously mother nature is playing a very critical role at the point we are in the growing season. And then we've got the conflict in Ukraine. And that's such an unprecedented situation that we just don't know how to price a war. You know, uh, are goods and services going to move? We just don't know. And then, of course, there's the inflation and recession situation where inflationary markets are generally very good for commodities. Recessionary markets are generally very poor for commodities.
0: Joe, we've got 60 days, really, until harvest gets underway. What are some things you're watching for in that time frame that could move the market?
10: We've got some really big government reports. So in just over 10 days, we're going to get the WASD report. And that usually starts to set the tone for what we could see for the rest of the growing season. So if the USDA brings down the corn yield, there's a very real possibility that in the next couple months, we could be seeing a downward trend. And so in the next 60 days, we'll get the August WASDE, the September WASDE. And then at the end of September is the very important September stocks report. And those stocks reports generally have a higher magnitude of market moving
0: prices. Well, folks, that's Joe Lardy, Market Intelligence and Insight Analyst with CHS Global Research. Joe, thanks for joining us today.
10: You bet. Thanks for having me.
0: And folks, thanks for joining us here around the table. To learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership, visit cooperativeownership.com. On the first Wednesday of every month, the National Corn Growers brings us the monthly grind here on AOA, looking at aspects of corn demand. In August, we talked about the partnership between corn and cattle with Kate Maher of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association.
9: We are really fortunate to have a great partnership with the National Corn Growers Association. We work together to bring a lot of information to producers, latest technology information to make all of us better and and keep that demand, keep that product flowing to meet that demand that's, that's around the globe. You know, we export a lot of corn through beef. Um, that's really important. Uh, we are fortunate, again, to partner partner with NCGA on a series that we've been doing on Cattlemen to Cattlemen. Uh, we've just got such a great story to tell together. Started at the Seed Yard in Nebraska talking about sustainability practices and, and corn production and beef production, and they just go hand in hand. That goes on to the next, next step um, where we're producing that really amazing grain-fed beef.
0: Tune in on Wednesday, September 7th for the next edition of the Monthly Grind from our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. You're listening to AOA Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA ladies and gentlemen. 34 days from now the town of grand island nebraska will be lit up with visitors from around the country and around the world as folks gather for the world's largest irrigated irrigation focused farm show of course that is husker harvest days very excited we are proud to promote the husker harvest days show with our friends from chief agri joining us now is travis woodside he's the vice president for international sales there at chief travis thank you for joining us on aoa today
11: yeah good morning happy to be with you
0: oh it's you getting excited to head to well head to grand island to be in grand island for the husker harvest day show
11: yeah we always look forward to this show it's it's a great event for us uh, we're happy to partner with the show um great presence every year you know and, and it's good to see everybody finally get out and, and meet face to face and be in person for an event like this <laughs>
0: absolutely and one of the cool things about the husker harvest days show is that of course you're you're focused on the grains that are growing out there across the great plains but you're also focused on where those grains are going which in that geography of course in a lot of ways means cattle joining us also is matt youngman he's the show director there at husker harvest days and matt you're going to have those cattle handling demonstrations uh, again this year
12: that is exactly right we will we'll have upwards of nine head shoots lined up and we've got a a local farmer, a local rancher there with a feedlot, and we—I uh, think for about 25 years now—we've been we've been borrowing his cattle to run through those demonstrations. And uh, Doc Joe Jeffries will be there to moderate, and they always have—it's uh, it, educational, but they have a good time putting on that cattle handling demonstration
0: absolutely it's always great to see those animals running through those head shoots, putting them putting them to the test so to speak to see how they'll work on your farm matt i mentioned husker harvest we're 30-ish days away give us the dates and the times
12: so husker harvest days this year is september 13th 14th and 15th it's it's tuesday wednesday thursday the full week after labor day and uh it's it's shaping up to to be a great one um you know if if folks have got any questions or uh, need some help planning their trip to the show huskerharvestdays.com has everything you would need
0: indeed it does and folks if you've never been it's worth getting on your calendar travis i imagine you're going to be there you are the international sales guy do you have any folks coming from around the world to take a look at what chief's got on display at husker
11: yeah the the show's international crowd has certainly grown through the years i know the, the nebraska economic development group uh, has done a great job of bringing out uh, a contingent uh, from, of people from all over the world. I know last year they had a, a pretty good group that came in from Africa. Um, there's always been a, a decent uh, gathering of people that come from Central America, Mexico, and those regions. And occasionally we get people in anywhere from um, Europe to, to Southeast Asia. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite interesting to see that interna- international group grow. And now, of course, the show has a lot of notoriety. Um, not only in the U.S. and, and in our parts, but it's well-known outside of here. Um, and with all the trade missions that the state of Nebraska does, it certainly brings a brings a good group of people in. So um, happy to meet with anybody that comes in and, and has interest and in, in or questions about chief or, or just uh, the industry in, in general in
3: Nebraska.
0: Well, I've got a question for you, Travis, about the industry in general. We've seen a lot of volatility in crop prices. Are you seeing outside of America demand growing for uh, grain bins?
11: You know, there has been a, a large pent-up demand for, for grain storage for quite some time, and that, that goes back many years. Um, COVID certainly slowed things down. Um, there were other factors, whether that was material pricing on, on steel or um other buyout, I mean, we all know that the issues with supply chain and everything that's happened. Uh, but that pent-up demand has certainly started to, to show its its teeth. And uh, this last year, we, we've seen a, a large demand. Um, a lot of projects that have been delayed for years have started to break loose as, as uh, commodity pricing on steel has come down, as the commodity pricing for grain to have started to go up. Obviously, it makes more sense to, to start investing at this point. Um, there's obviously a, an export issue right now coming out of Eastern Europe. Uh, so there's a lot of countries that are, are looking how they can fill that gap. So for us, whether it's on port facility developments, uh, processing developments, um, there, there's a lot going on. You've got a growing middle class throughout the world that, you know, their, their protein base is starting to grow. So that means that feed production uh, has started to increase. That means you have to handle more grains. Um, and that's where we come into play. So we we have opportunities in in, uh, dealers in about 65 countries throughout the world that we deal with um, and and have seen demand grow in about every region, so it's
0: been really good. Travis, that's a great point. There's the pent up demand. The past two years, the supply chain difficulties kept folks perhaps out of dealer lots, out of reps' yards, and now things are starting to break loose. Matt, of course, we've got to have equipment if we're going to have displays. Will there be tractors running on the grounds, either with people in them or without, at Husker Harvest Days?
12: Well, there certainly will be. You know, the, 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 the supply chain issues aren't completely worked through. So not all of the exhibitors are taking maybe all the space that they would typically take because they just don't have the machines to put on the lots. But with that being said, there is kind of a, a lineup that each one of the companies has that's rolling through the show season. And so you're gonna have you're gonna have plenty of machines there to see. And obviously all these companies lined up to take orders and, and have conversations about the machines, but you talk about um, with or without operators, there's certainly going to be a lot of machines running without operators. And what you're talking about there is the autonomous zone we have right at the northeast corner of the show site. So, folks who have questions or just kind of want to learn more about these, these autonomous machines, all the right folks that can answer their questions are going to be right there, uh, just outside of, uh, of Gate Eight, and uh, and you know specifically Raven. They're coming with a new product that they're going to unveil at the fall show swing. So lots of this new autonomous machinery running there at the show.
0: And as an observer, if I make it to Husker Harvest Days and I'm watching the autonomous zone, am I just standing back observing the equipment operating? I'm not going to be in the cab, am I, Matt?
12: No, you're certainly not. It's it's kind of a hands off demonstration instead of a hands on demonstration. But uh, they're going to have they're going to have all those different machines running the the what used to be the smart cart and, and, uh, and then the, the dot machine, what used to be the dot machine, both of them running and, and available for folks to ask questions on
0: Folks, get it on your calendar. September 13th through the 15th, Grand Island, Nebraska, Husker Harvest Days. Big thanks to Travis Woodside of Chief Agri for joining us today. And of course, Matt Youngman for getting the grounds ready for everybody over there at Grand Island. Thanks for listening to AOA. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back tomorrow taking a look at potential crop yields with Greg Horsmeyer of DTN. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
6: Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed.